Thank you so much for having me here. No, actually, this is a wonderful community. I know everyone here is grateful to be part of it, but as an outsider who wasn't quite sure exactly what I had signed myself up for, <laughs> I am just feeling so welcomed and uh, really um, joyful to know that you exist. And I was saying to somebody, you know, to walk into this room and to see um, the diversity reflected in the community. Um, this is one of the most diverse gatherings in Palo Alto. Are we in Palo Alto or Mountain View here? Palo Alto, Palo Alto. Yeah, yeah. It's the most diverse gathering in Palo Alto I've been to in a long time. So um, it felt really good from that perspective and just the vibe that you have here. So thank you. Well, you beat me to the punch because I actually wanted to share some nice accolades. I, I read How to Raise an Adult, and it completely shifted my thinking. And then I read Real American. And um, I don't even know how to put into words... Um, it wasn't just a read where I come away with notes. It was a read where I came, came away with an experience that just um, uh, raised my consciousness to a whole different level that I so appreciate. Um, thank so you. thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you. And I want to actually kind of combine a little bit of the two books together with some of my questions. But first, I want to do a speed round. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Here's my speed round. <clears throat> I have some personal parenting philosophies that I have. Um, and I need a counselor okay. to tell me what is right and what is wrong with those counseling ph- philosophies, okay? Is this where I tell you I'm a lawyer turned university dean? I'm not, <laughs> okay, a, not a parenting expert, but I'll try. Okay. Um, so what I'm, I'm going to share these. They're very quick, one-liners, and I would love your quick response and reply. Okay? okay? Yes. Here's a parenting philosophy. Okay. Don't die. Everything else we can fix. Correct. <laughs> Correct. No, we act these days as if everything is life or death. We've decided everything is an emergency. Everything might impact their future. So that's why we've, we've brought our bumpers and guardrails in the sense of like a bowling game. We've got our bumpers and guardrails right next to the ball. So all it can do is go straight down and hit a strike. And we've got to widen those blinders and bumpers, pull them back so the kid has some room to meander and try and fail. Our job is to, protect, to keep them safe until they can keep themselves safe. So we don't want them to die. We don't turn our backs on them when they're, when they're literally drowning in water. Yeah. Um, but short of these life or death things, we're supposed to see kind of the mistakes and the curveballs that life throws their way as natural and normal and desirable if they're going to get strong enough and have the skills they'll need to be okay when we're gone. Beautiful. 90% of all parenting is simply managing your own anxiety. Oh, I think that's so beautiful. You're very wise. Are you going to write a parenting book? (laughs) No. Yeah. I think our own I joked, get a life and maybe your kid can have one too. Nowadays, but I say it because I think it's partially true. We are so caught up in managing our kids' day-to-day lives. We worry about everything. We're so anxious. They look into our eyes and they see our anxiety and that helps make them anxious. And so if we could just get a handle, a grip on our own um, anxiety, if we could get a grip on why is it that I need my kid to be amazing at this, you know, with a little bit of counseling, a little bit of therapy, if we could get a little bit more well ourselves, we could offer a more well childhood to our children. The goal of parenting or raising children is more about modeling our behavior than modifying theirs. That's beautiful. Um, we're our kids' biggest role models. Whether we're their best role models is entirely to be seen, right? They look to us always. And so whether we're talking about an issue of character or frequency and use of technology or work ethic, we should first be behaving in ways we want our kids to emulate rather than just telling them what we wish they'd do. Often we do this. Often it's like, you need to spend less time on your phone. 
You know, like we're looking at our phone or iPad or whatever, tablet, as we're telling our kids that they're not, you know, that they're using technology too much. So being that role model, really walking the walk is essential. Beautiful. Last one. That which you give attention, you give power. Oh, nice. That which you give attention, you give power. So I think I've read a number of other folks' parenting books, and certainly the folks who are real expert at the developmental psychology sense will say this, that our children want our attention. Somehow they're going to get it somehow. So if you praise those good behaviors when you see them happen, and not overpraise. When we're overparenting often, it's, oh, my gosh, you're so amazing. Great job. You know, we just can't shut up. about. It's like... You're supposed to just drop a nice compliment and move on instead of act as if they've just been the most amazing human the world has ever seen, right? So reward, acknowledge the good behaviors. And with the bad behaviors, you know, it's not about, you know, we want to redirect them from the bad behaviors by rewarding and acknowledging the good behaviors. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay. I want to shift to anytime we think about a principle, an idea, a concept, there's always a tension that comes with it. And I'd like to ask about one specific tension that I had when I, when I read the first opening chapters of How to Raise an Adult. You talk about the decline of child abductions, the decline of uh, these horrible things that happen to children, et cetera, et cetera. And you were giving some good statistics for that. Um, but the other tension for me rose up is that I have this beautiful little one. Yeah. Feel if there is just a 1% chance... That anything or a point zero 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 one percent chance that anything negative or horrible is going to happen to her. Am I not reasonable and rational as an adult to protect her from all of that point zero zero one percent? So the the tension that I have is that I think intellectually and data wise, I agree with the decline, but internally my amygdala will not let it go. That, okay, all it takes is that one, yeah. and all it takes is that one to be me, my family, and my child. So That tension. So let me tell you this. You're putting her at far greater risk of loss of life by letting her be a passenger in your car. Okay? It is less safe. You know, a child is more likely to be harmed by, in a car accident, significantly harmed if not killed, than uh, they are to be abducted or harmed by a stranger. Okay? So to just put into perspective the risks we take every day, the risks we decide are reasonable um, versus those that, that are infinitesimally small, but we tend to build childhood around. Here's another way to look at it. Our, as I said earlier, our job is to keep our kids safe until they can keep themselves safe. And it's not as if that means wrap them in a plastic bubble and then one day magically when they turn 18 or 21, they're going to no longer need the bubble and they're going to know how to keep themselves safe. It doesn't work that way. They're supposed to practice every step along the way, you know, using better and better judgment, being more and more safe out in the world, being at a greater distance from us, being away from us for longer periods of time. So we're, as, as terrifying as it is, we're supposed to want them to build that skill set themselves. We have to imagine the fact that one day we'll be gone and we don't want our child to be bewildered having been utterly protected their entire lives by us only to discover once we're incapable or gone that they have absolutely no skill to fend for themselves. Then we're essentially raising them to be like veal. There's a guy I quote in my book, he's a superintendent in Massachusetts, and he says, young people today, too many young people today are like veal. You know, what happens to a lovely little veal cow? It gets eaten. You know, it's, it's ready for slaughter. You know, we don't want our kids to be veal out in the world. We want them to be strong. 
It's very visceral images. I know. Sorry. (laughs) We're having eggplant parmesan tonight, just not veal parmesan. You had mentioned, um, and you've been very um, transparent with knowing this, saying it, speaking it, talking about it, writing about it is one thing. Living it in the moment is another thing. So I kind of wanted to push you or ask you to expand on, is there anything that you have um, that you would give advice to or what kind of handholds would you give parents or anybody who's working with children? We have a lot of educators in the room as well. Um, In the moment, you have to somehow reach towards these skills and these principles and these concepts, but in the moment, you're also battling your own emotions. So I was just kind of curious if you could expand a a little bit on some skill sets for the the in-the-moment Yep. So my first thought is this. I have to say, I told a few stories tonight on myself as a parent. Long gone are the days when I'm criticizing other parents for not letting go, right? I realized, I told you that aha moment when I figured out, oh my gosh, I'm a helicopter parent, Okay. So I give talks. I try to tell stories on myself so people understand. I'm saying, look what we're doing. I'm not saying, look what you're doing. I'm saying, look what we're doing. Let me tell you some of my stories and, um, so that you, you know that we're all in this together, and I can totally relate because I'm doing it too. Number two, I try to keep the wisdom of um, uh, Madeline Levine in mind. She's a Marin County psychologist. She has a couple great books out on parenting. And her books, her wisdom basically boil, on this subject boils down to we mustn't do what our kids can already do for themselves, can almost do for themselves, or what's just in furtherance of our own ego. And this, what our kids can almost do for themselves, is I think the point where you can make the decision in the moment to back off a little bit. Right? If you do what they can almost do, you're depriving your child of the chance to learn. Okay? Of course you can do it more quickly, more efficiently, more correctly. You can load that dishwasher so that every single thing gets perfectly clean. I know some of you have like this method for your dishwasher, right? So you don't want your kid loading the dishwasher because they won't do it as well. Well, how do you ever expect them to learn to do it right if they don't have the opportunity to start? And you give them a little feedback the next time. Next time, don't put the fork in this way. Do it this way. It'll be clean. You give them feedback. So there's this four-step method for teaching any kid any skill. And this is what... So when we've noticed in the moment, like, oh my gosh, I'm about to overhelp. You know, this is a learning opportunity for them. They're not falling off a cliff. You know, this is a learning opportunity. There's a four-step method we have to always keep in mind for teaching any kid any skill. First, you do it for them, whatever it is. You do it for them. Babe in arms, you do everything for them. Step two, you do it with them. This is when you hold their hand or they're, you're right there, they're near you. You're doing it all, but you're narrating out loud, teaching with your language and your body language how the skill gets accomplished. Step three, you watch them do it. That means you're no longer holding their hand. You say, it's your turn, buddy. You know, you're going to practice sauteing something on the stove today, but you're still there to make sure the house doesn't burn down or their clothing doesn't catch on fire. You know, like you're there. But they're getting to do the doing. And you practice step three enough times, you can move to step four, and your kid be making a meal on the, you know, a simple meal on the stove without your having to be right up next to them. Not at age three, but maybe by age eight or nine. Um, so keep that four-step method in mind. First you do it for them, then you do it with them, then you watch them do it, and then they can do it completely independently. It applies to everything. Well, and it sounds like you actually have to put this into practice so it becomes second nature to you. Exactly. Right? You it actually to be, have to do this. You have over to and over want over it. You have to want, you have to delight in the fact that your kid is growing skills. Imagine this. Imagine if we could take the delight we feel when they're learning to walk and apply that to everything. When they learn to walk, what happens? They toddle around and then what? They fall. By the way, my daughter, Avery's 
Bing Nursery School teacher, Michelle Forrest, is here. Raise your hand, Michelle. So she's here now. It's Avery 17. Michelle was her teacher when she was two. I love the fact that you're here in this room. All right. So when they're learning to walk, they fall. And we don't say, get up. We don't fall in this family. Right? Well, right? We, we clap. You know, get back up, honey. Right? We're delighted that they're going to try again. And they must fall. Why? To strengthen their little muscles and their joints and whatnot so that when they stand again, they might have a chance of making a little bit farther this time than they fall. And then they pull themselves back up again. It is that process of falling and getting back up that strengthens them so that they can learn to walk. Okay, if we could bring, if we could summon that video reel, you know, if we could kind of get that image in our brains and apply it to every single skill they're learning where we're delighted that they are figuring it out, you know, that will help us be better parents to our children. Sue Ann wants to jump in here. Yes. So, um, what is your name? Sue Ann. Sue Ann. And I admit, I think there's a part of me that's always been a helicopter parent, even though I try very hard to do the things that have the same values that Kevin just spoke to you. I think we all balance around that. And I have, I have two very different kids. I have one that's happy for to have me do everything for him, even though I won't let him because he's 16 and... <laughs> he's right there <laughs> but we still made him learn how to cook and learn how to drive and he's going to go to college someday without me moving oh. with him <laughs> but um, my question is because I have, like I said I have two very different kids I have one that will never let me be the helicopter parent has never let me beyond the age of four or five when she finally started speaking to the rest of the world um, but my concern for her is she's also internalizing the kind of pressure like I, I have not, not put, ever put on them the pressure that they have to get attain a certain education and attain a certain college. Like I want them to figure out what they want to do with their life. But she's put that pressure on herself, partly because of this area, the fact that you worked at Stanford. I'm hoping maybe you have some insight for a way that I can help her. She's actually a theater kid and wants to be an actor when she grows up, but also thinks she has to take all the advanced classes in school and do all the crazy hard stuff. And I worry for the pressure she's putting on herself. I actually have no say in her grades as long as she's not actually failing her classes if she she's she won't let me even help her with her homework so as a ninth grader she's on her own that's great um but i worry for the pressure she's putting on herself that's even unnecessary because it's not what she needs for her what she wants yeah and what school is she at she's at menlo atherton okay a a school she chose herself she was homeschooled through eighth grade and chose to go to menlo atherton as a ninth grader sue ann I think it's awesome that your daughter knows that she loves theater and that you know it and that you value it, okay? I would, um, there's a guy up the road at Stanford named Bill Damon. He's a professor of education. He, uh, also psychology, I think, by Curtis, whatever. He's um, labeled and defined the term adolescent decades ago. And I went and interviewed him for my book about the, you know, what does overparenting do to child's development? And he said, Julie, a parent can no more choose a child's passion for them than they can choose a child's personality. So when it comes to helping a child on their path, we can't give them a passion, but we're supposed to look for the spark of interest in their kids, in in our kids. I'm snapping because it's a spark church, right? The spark of interest coming from them. And then we fan the flames. And fanning the flames looks like this, whatever your means, whatever your willingness may be around your resources, your time, fanning the flames means providing the opportunities for that kid to take that spark of interest further and further and further. So for you to be interested when it comes time for summer, is there a local summer camp that is affordable for you all 
that is a theater camp so that she can continue to hone and develop her talents in theater and to let her, you know, to, to help introduce her to people who have lives in theater and say, what are the most important things, you know, looking back, what advice would you give a high schooler about what to study? You know, I'm guessing it's going to be more and more study in the humanities, you know, and, um, and, and to just say, you know, when your kid is super stressed, I would say to her, you know, I admire your work ethic. I admire that you want to do really well on this. Just remember there are only 24 hours in a day and you're supposed to sleep for nine of them as a teenager. She disagrees, I'm sure, right? But, but often, often they don't listen until they are struggling and then they desperately need us to say it's perfectly okay. You know, I was not perfect. You're not perfect. We're all imperfect. Your sleep matters. Sometimes you're going to get B's and C's and whatever it is. You know, sometimes that's going to happen and that, you know, you'll, you'll be fine, honey. Um, and so to provide that reassuring advice in the moment when um, she can hear it, uh, which is either the moment of crisis or shortly after it's resolved for the moment for you to drop that nugget of wisdom, which is it's not about the grade tomorrow. You know, it's about getting back up, keep going, manage your time. If you can't get everything done, you can't get everything done. Move on. Yeah. Then my other question is, how do I hold myself back until that moment comes? <laughs> you probably don't have an answer for that. But what do I you think mean? that's the other side as a parent where it's like, she's so strong-willed that I, I battle her more than I should. Her brother probably agrees with that too, but I he's do not hear you. Right now, so you're good. Oh no, he is oh, listening. So, he can listen okay. to two things at once. <laughs> two it's actually once. amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but yeah, I guess I, I hear that. And I think it's just speaking to me about how much she's a child that has always taught me. I have to let go. Yeah. So, and it is, so it sounds it like is, she's yeah. very strong willed as you've said. Yeah. And, um, so to Kevin's earlier point about, you know, they, what was it about? Um, my response was, the good behavior and the bad behaviors. Like they, re, they want attention. They that seek you, right. that which you give attention, you give power. You give power. Yeah. So if you're giving a lot of attention to the fact that she's strong-willed, you know, you're just making her more strong-willed. Like I mentioned earlier, I joined a church, you know, that I probably didn't want to because my mother said, you'll join that church over my dead body. And I was like, okay, watch me. And um, so I learned from that, that when we squeeze our kids too hard, they're going to pop out in some other direction. We can think we're making it all happen. And they're just going to, at some point, it's like trying to squeeze a balloon that's full. It's going to bust out in some other direction. So I've learned we have to actually take a little bit of a step back so that they don't feel the need to rebel against us and go in this direction. So, um, you know, I would figure out what can you praise her for? What can you be delighted about? And um, resist commenting on everything. I resist the need to, to control. Yeah, it is hard. And talking to people is good. Talking to, you know, like I said, I'm not an expert, but there are plenty of people um, in the community who, you know, maybe, maybe it's worth going and, and talking to a counselor about why do I need to be in control of this strong-willed child? You know, she's battling with you. Maybe you're quite similar to her in some ways. I don't know. I hear rumor of that. <laughs> well, I, I'm, that would make sense. Okay. I too am strong-willed. I have a very strong-willed daughter. I have a very strong-willed mother. And my mother, we all live together, as I mentioned. So I get, when I'm in my mother's side of the house and her, she has a little attached cottage, I get to be the daughter. And when I'm feeling the strong-willedness in me is wanting to act out against my mother, all of a sudden I have this mindfulness thing happen where I'm like, aha. I don't want my daughter to ever feel the way I'm currently feeling sitting here with my mother. How am I going to show up differently when I go next door back to my house and I'm the mom? How am I going to show up differently with my daughter so she doesn't feel this sort of thing that I'm feeling? So becoming more aware of your own proclivities, your own what's coming up for you, try to name it, handle it, 
you know, and work on yourself, doing a little bit more work on yourself might make you a little bit more effective with your daughter. Okay. Thank you, Suan. And Suan's son, the 16-year-old. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Hi there. What school do you go to? You're still homeschooled. Okay. Okay, cool. Nice to meet you. Uh, in your, this is actually very appropriate. Um, one of my questions was psychological health. You write, we don't want our kids to bonk their head or have hurt feelings, but we're willing to take real chances with their mental health. Yeah. Which I thought was a really power, like that's a really piercing statement, like mental health. Um, so I really appreciated you pointing out the juxtaposition between physical safety and then emotional and psychological safety. Um, specifically because you had mentioned tiger parents, and then you had also referenced an article by Frank Wu in your book that I thought was really telling about that style of parenting. I also appreciated, um, at least from what I've understood, that tiger parenting definitely is not um, restricted to one particular ethnic group. Um, So I was wondering if you could push a little bit more and speak a little bit on your reflections on your findings from what tiger parenting or that kind of style has actually reaped psychologically and um, help us move towards better psychological and emotional health. Yeah. So just let me give more props to Frank Wu. Frank Wu is a Bay Area guy um, who jokes that um, my Chinese-American immigrant parents are still disappointed in me, even though he's been the dean of a bunch of law schools. He chose law, which they were disappointed in, and he's risen to the heights of his profession in law, you know, academic law life, and yet he jokes they're still disappointed that I'm not a brain surgeon. And he's sort of partly joking, and he's done a lot of wonderful writing about um, some of the unique challenges that uh, growing up Chinese-American can uh, place upon a child um, if parents come with those values about you need to be a this or that in order for your life to be worthwhile. And so check out Frank Wu's uh, blogs. He wrote something, uh, Everything My Chinese-American immigrant parents taught me turned out to be wrong. And he says he expected to be pelted with tomatoes after writing that. And instead, because he was sort of telling on his parents or on the cultural traditions around raising kids, instead he had people coming up to him in droves in tears saying, you're speaking my truth. You're telling my story. I don't feel alone anymore. So it's a wonderful um, set of writings. Um, All right. I've worked with enough students. I had 1,700 freshmen every year, 17,000 in 10 years. I knew them better as sophomores, even better as juniors, and you know, got to know them super well by the time they were seniors. So I knew a lot of young people, and my job was to care about them. And I saw over and over again in every ethnic persuasion students who were being marched down a path of their parents' making, who were shells of a human being. When someone's overjoyed by what they're working on, when they love what they do, when they're passionate for real, you can't hide it. It shows. The, the eyes dance with light when a person is excited about what they're pursuing. When they're going through the motions, it shows. I knew so many young people biding their time to tell their parents they didn't want to be doctors. They were pre-meds undergrad, but they were sure that the time would come when, when they finally were a doctor and they had the white coat and the stethoscope, then they could say with the authority conferred upon them by the degree, MD, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. And I thought, what a waste of so many things, including all of these years of your precious life, that spot in med school someone else might actually have wanted. You know, but this is the impact. 
You know, being marched down a path of life someone else has in mind for you makes you feel like a drone in your own life, a robot, a puppet. And none of us are here to be drones or puppets. Many of us are doing to our own kids what was done to us. We had parents who wouldn't see us for who we were. We ended up in a profession we were supposed to be in. And we're here in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s going, is this what I want for my life? Those of us who've learned that the hard way should not be replicating that same harm in our own kids' lives. You wrote this book, or at least it was published in 2015. I'm presuming it took a lot longer to write. Is there anything that you've rethought, reworked, or would say differently? Absolutely. Since the published Yeah, absolutely. So this one came out in 2015, and um, I ended up giving a TED Talk in late 2015 that came out in 2016. You referenced it earlier. And I learned some really important things about chores um, when after the book came out. I allude to chores in here, but not nearly as much as um, I end up talking about chores now if, when I have the time. So it turns out there's this longitudinal study of humans conducted called the Harvard Grant Study. And it was conducted over many, many decades. It's still going. They basically took a cohort of people in their 20s and they're studying them all the way through until they pass away. And it's thrown off thousands of findings, but this is the most important for our conversation. That study found that humans were, were successful professionally in life if they'd done chores as a child or had had a part-time job in high school. And so I joke with parents, it's not Kumon, it's the vacuum, okay? <laughs> like, why? Because chores lead to a work ethic. You learn chores, you learn there is unpleasant work to be done, and we all pitch in. We roll up our sleeves. We ask, how can I be useful? How can I exert my effort for the betterment of the whole? Okay? Chores as a child equals work ethic equals better in the workplace. Okay? I wish I'd understood that a little bit more when I pulled this book together. And, to be honest, I knew I was a little bit of a helicopter parent when I wrote this, but I've come to terms with my own stories as I've made my way raising these kids. It's been six years now since I left Stanford, three years since the book came out, and I am still finding moments where I'm stunned at my own overparenting. And fortunately, I have a strong-willed daughter uh, like Sue Ann who will give me the side eye. She'll say, hashtag raise an adult. You know? <laughs> So I'm here telling other people what to do. And then at home, my daughter's like, hey. Um, so, um, and my son is the elder, and he's the one who we overparented. We often get it right with our younger children. And, um, you know, I'm watching him as a 19-year-old struggle to make his way. And he's having stumbles and whatnot, all within the realm of normal college student. I know that better than most what's normal. And my husband and I are working at how do we help this kid you know, gain the executive function skills that he needs, the planning, the keeping track. He's been, you know, this bright, bright kid who's, who's been able to do very well without having much of a structure in his life. And now in college, it's hitting him in the face. And we're trying to assist and, and give advice without enabling. We don't want to become his executive function, right? We want to give him tools and help and give him feedback and whatnot, be a set of people he can check in with as he gets more and more responsible for himself. And that's hard because we could do it for him. But I know, again, I'm, I'm trying to prepare for the day when I'm not here, you know, and my kids are in the world without us. And I want to know that they've got the, the skills to make their own way. Yeah. 
I, just to brag on my congregation, yes. this community that I love, you mentioned that we're a very multiracial, multiethnic community, and we have, over the last couple of years, um, uh, pushed hard on trying to be color brave rather than color blind, right? To really engage in conversations. Um, uh, we read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Yes. Um, we have a, a wonderful uh, community that meets and has met on a regular basis to talk about racial issues and stuff. And this book, Real American, as I mentioned before, was was just one of those. Um, I couldn't I couldn't take notes. It was just like I just felt the realness and the rawness of how you had to live through all of those experiences. That you should just read the book because it's really powerful. My question is, how do you put these two together? The challenges of, of growing up biracial. We have many children in our community that are biracial. Um, and there's a sense of wanting to raise them brave, strong, resilient in that, and yet protect them from so much of the chaos and the hurt and... And that, that comes with that as well. Yeah. So I would love, yeah. I, this has been the question I've been yeah. yearning to ask you. Sure. How do you meld these two yeah. books together? Yeah. How, do, how do you process that and yeah. what kind of direction, guidance, advice? Yeah. And especially for many in our community that are raising yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thank children you for that. with that. So for those who don't know this book, this is a memoir on being black and biracial in this country. I'm 50 years old, so it's... It's the story of my life around race, and you've described it as being about being biracial. For me, biracial is an aspect of my black identity, um, and um, so to me, this is a black story that happens to be also biracial. I have a white mother and a black father, and the nine parts of this book are uh, most books, what well, you're told when you are learning to be a writer, when you're teaching writing, you try to teach your students to have an arc to your book, whether it's a novel or a memoir. You're supposed to take your reader on a journey of increased tension and conflict to, till you get to this sort of big climactic point, and then you have your denouement. And I like to say that this book has more of a pit that I fall into and come out of. So the parts of the book are, it begins like this, an American childhood, becoming the other, desperate to belong, self-loathing, emerging, declaring Black Lives Matter onward. And so this period of self-loathing is this space that I inhabited from about age 17 to 37, about 20 years when I was outwardly successful, brand name college, brand name law school, corporate law, university dean, but feeling a degree of self-loathing, basically trying to never be called the N-word again, has happened to me on my 17th birthday in my all-white high school. And I never told anybody about that. I was just starting to perform, trying to perform the part of the black person who would never be called that again. And I emerged from this self-loathing by finally naming the vice grip that racism had on me and on my sense of self. So that's what this book is about. And I write for the ear as much as I write for the mind's eye, so I do aim for a lyricism, for a cadence, uh, for it to be poetic in certain places. So if you get it and notice that, and you wonder, did she mean this? Yes, she meant it. So in terms of how I knit them together, um, meta, what I'm passionate about is helping humans. Many of us are interested in helping humans, and, and I am too. And, and my interest is in trying to identify obstacles and move them from a person's path. And, um, and helicopter parenting is harming humans. I've seen it. 
I feel like I got to see the future and being a dean to other people's kids. And I'm running back to the present to those of us still raising kids and saying, don't do that. It leads to a cliff. Okay. And racism harms humans. Racism gets in the way. I talk about, you know, some of the microaggressions, some of the slights and insults that I happen to experience as this biracial black kid with very light skin with this voice growing up in mostly white places. And, um, and so I think in some senses that, that is, you know, what knits these seemingly disconnected books together. I'm interested in, in, in the obstacles and these are two of them. So in terms of how to parent around both of these books, um, fundamentally, our children need to leave our homes knowing how to do chores, right? That gives them the work ethic. The second thing the Harvard Grant study taught was that's important for parents is happiness in life equals love, loving relationships with other humans. So if our kids can leave our homes knowing how to work, roll up their sleeves, pitch in, work hard, work ethic, and knowing how to love themselves so that they can go out into the world and give and receive love, chores and love will turn out to be the foundation that they need. We might add uh, as well faith and so on, values. Okay? So um, we must teach our children, we must love our children unconditionally if they have any chance of loving themselves. How many of us didn't feel loved unconditionally and have spent years, decades trying to work our way out of that? So we have to love them for who they are, take an interest in this joyful task, humbling task of getting to be the humans alongside these tiny humans who are trying to grow up in our presence. Love the heck out of them unconditionally so that they will love themselves or at least have a good chance of it. So with a child who is different, biracial, um, to be in a community where they aren't the only ones who look different, to be in a diverse community so they don't feel like I'm the only one that doesn't match everyone else here. It is harmful to raise a child of any race among people who are all entirely not like them. But if it is a multiracial community, at least there's a sense of, oh, you know, you know, there isn't this concept of you don't match your, you, you're supposed to match your parents or all your friends are supposed to have the same hair texture or color. So to choose community where a child can feel loved, we're all hungry to feel loved and accepted and so are children. So to choose a community where your child can have peers and mentors, teachers, coaches, preachers who look like them, this helps them develop a healthy sense of self. And with our children who are of color, we must equip them to thrive in America, which is lately such a hateful version of itself. Um, white nationalism has been given permission to come back out. And unfortunately, these are the times we inhabit. And so we must teach our children about what it can be like out there, teach them how to be smart and safe out there. Our challenge in particular with black children, particularly black boys, is to teach them, to give them the talk repeatedly, teach them how to be smart and strong out there, how to be safe, but simultaneously to teach them that they are worthy of all the love. In other words, not to let the realities of the world erode a child's sense of who they are. We must be proud of who we are and of who they are so they feel the bolstering of that pride and love, which will be their foundation when they go out into the world. And then, you know, things will happen. People will say what they say. Stuff will happen. But that sense of I love myself, you know, I know I'm, I'm worthy of love um, because I was loved first at home um, and by God. Um, uh, that is, in fact, an incredible strength we can offer our children. Thank you. That was beautiful. 
can you, some of us are parenting young ones. And I think I'm writing that line of like the, particularly as a result of the news. We, we've been reflecting on, well, not, yeah. Okay. When we grew up, my parents, the only way they could get news is if they read it in the paper, yes. it was on. My so, mother's still that way. Yes. Right? So yep. we, we were exposed as young kids. I was exposed as a young child to all of that. My father's a Vietnam vet. Like we had all of that stuff just as realities in the home. We, because um, I don't really have a television in my home, I have this privilege of pretending like the world is great for my little one. Mm. And I'm wondering like at what age in your experience – Mm. is the age where you, and we try to not shelter her from everything, but there's obviously like, we didn't, we didn't talk a lot about the events of two weeks ago. Yeah. Right? Um, I've taken her to March for our lives rallies. We've taken her to DACA rallies, but I didn't take her to the vigil. Yeah. I didn't want her to walk in here on a Saturday or a Sunday and have that fear in her head of something that even though it's happened is still a 0.01%. So cause she's four. Yeah. Where have you noticed? Yeah. I mean, I recognize it's different with every kid, sure, but sure. at what point do you start to equip them yeah, for the right. rough things that right. they could be called? Right. And you want to have equipped them before the world teaches you a lesson you didn't expect the world to teach. So if your black daughter comes home and asks you what the N word means, you know, um, right, you will have wanted to have talked about race, if not the N word, before that, you know, I think. Absolutely. So, right. So, um, I had a four-year-old come to a reading for Real American in Baltimore. Not on her own, of course. She didn't just (laughs) toddle in off the street with a cappuccino in her hand, right? One of my Stanford colleagues, Marietta Lynch, she worked at the uh, uh, athletic department. She left Stanford and moved to Baltimore. And I had a reading at the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore last fall. And she said, I'm going to come. I'm bring my husband and my two kids. And I said, you know, this reading can be kind of tough. How old are the kids? She said, oh, they're eight and four. I said... Yeah, you don't want to bring them to this reading because I there's a passage I read where I read the N word because I was called it and I read that passage. I use the F word a couple, four or five times. And I said, and I didn't want to alter my reading because this lady is bringing some children. So I wanted to say, like, don't, it, you know, love to see you, but, you know, please leave the, you get a sitter or, you know. She said, don't worry about it. I'm bringing them. So I said, fine. So I'm giving this reading, occasionally looking out in the audience at her with my eyebrows raised as if to say, like, Yo, I'm about to go there, you know, and she's like, so I just do it. The evening ends. It's all good. The good questions. I sign books. I go home or my hotel to wherever I'm going next. I hear from Marietta the next day on Facebook Messenger. Julie, do you want to hear the conversation in our car last night driving home? And I'm thinking like, lady, you know, my friend, like you did this, right? But I was like, sure. And she goes, my daughter, the four-year-old piped up from the back seat. I know she was talking to my ears, but it felt like she was talking in my heart. And I thought, that's what compassion is. This little girl just heard some lady read a story about a life experience she has not had. She's four and white, you know, and yet she felt something. She felt some compassion. And that said to me that compassion is probably their capability from the start and life can beat compassion out of a person. But what if we were to raise children to be compa- children to be compassionate humans from the start? So then I think it's never too young. It's just a question of what kind of language you use, how much detail you use, you know, to be right. So I think it's always, it's just like I said, sometimes people say, 
well, when do we start not overparenting? You know, when do we start building skills? And I say, the minute they can walk, they're walking away. And we're supposed to delight in them getting long, farther and farther and stronger and stronger and so on, you know? And we don't want them to walk too far when they're too young, but we're supposed to delight in that. Same with their discovery of, of the world. So I think your motherly, fatherly, parental instincts are strong. You know, you know your child, your family, your values, but don't delude yourself into thinking, I don't have a TV, so I, I'm sheltering them from all that's happening. Their classmates are talking. They pick up language you know, in a really facile way. So they hear, they see the anxiety when we're worried about something. So to choose age-appropriate dialogue, vocabulary, examples from young, I think is appropriate. Yeah, because then they'll actually feel it authentically. They'll have that sense of compassion, social justice bred into them because of the conversations you've been brave enough to have with them. This is great. Please. Hi. Hi. I have three boys. What is your name? Annie. Annie. Yes. Hi. I have three boys. They're 8, 10, and 13. Okay. And the question that I have for you is that I feel like I totally, absolutely loved your book. Thank you. Um, the question that I have is that I multiple times get questions from their te- teachers that it's almost like asking me to come in and like help with their behavior in the class or, you know, whatever's going on. And so I am struggling on how to find that because it makes me then want to like jump in and fix it for him. But I can't, I'm not there. And so I just am interested in your perspective of like how to manage that situation where I'm trying to pull away and let them kind of figure this out. And I feel like sometimes the teachers are pulling me in. Yeah, Annie, I hear that a lot. And I think, as with most things, it's all about balance. So if your kid is really acting out in school and is disrupting other kids' learning in the classroom, um, it's a good idea for you to see what that looks like and to be a partner with the teacher and the school in trying to help your kid, your son, regulate his behavior. You know, um, If it's uh, your kid isn't doing their homework and the parent wants you to know about every assignment and wants you to check and make sure it's in the bag and wants you to, then I think that's where a teacher is overreaching and having you do what the child needs to learn the hard way, perhaps that is their responsibility. And so for you to make a place in the home for, we do our homework, create the expectation. We work hard. We do our homework. Now's the time. Here's a place. It's a desk. It's a dining table. You know, it's time for us to get our homework done. Um, to create the expectation and the opportunity, but ultimately that child's got to walk the walk and do his own homework and turn it in and so on. So I would say to the teacher, if it's, if that's a circumstance, I would say, I'm really trying to teach them to be responsible for their own um, actions and behaviors. And if they don't, then the consequences that naturally flow should flow. If they're going to be, have to sit in from recess or they're going to get a zero or whatever it is, because they didn't meet your expectations, that's that's the relationship here. You're the teacher. They're the student. I don't want to intervene in a way that somehow results in them not learning this valuable lesson. So thank you. Um, I have two final questions. Yes. We're going to let you go because you, uh, you have a late night and you've got a very, very busy schedule coming up. Thank you so much again. My um, pleasure. It, m- my uh, penultimate question yes. is what is giving you hope in the midst of all of this? Yeah. Do you find traction? Are yeah. people starting to shift? Is there an awakening? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. what's, what's giving you hope in, in this? Well, one thing that's giving me hope, and I hope you all don't take this the wrong way, but whenever I see really tiny children, 
I think, okay, well, people are still having babies, so that gives me hope. That says those people are optimistic about the world, so, and to then see the children and see their innocence and their wonder and hear their laughter and their questions and whatnot. You know, to be around children is just to be in the presence of joy, and so um, children always give me hope. Um, uh, frankly, young adults also give me hope. My next book is on adulting. It's on how to be an adult. And I'm trying to make it an offering to 18 to 35 year olds who may feel they're not hashtag adulting to say, this is what adulting actually is. It's not one path. There's not one way. It's a mindset. It's a set of habits. It's taking pleasure and being in charge of yourself. And it's not as bad as you think it is. Like you can do this. And I'm trying to I hope this will be an offering that people will find useful. And um, so I guess what I'm saying is I actually believe in humans. I love humans. I believe in humans. I'm rooting for all of us. And um, what gives me hope specifically in this present political context is when people step up and speak um, their truth in the face of hatred and racism. I just heard on Facebook... One of my former teachers in my MFA program, when I went back, left Stanford to go try to become a better writer, did an MFA in writing at California College of the Arts, this woman, Donna De La Perriere, is a poet. She taught me, and she's a white woman who lives in Oakland with her poet husband, also white. And she posted today that she came downstairs in her apartment building today to retrieve something from outside the front door. Maybe a package had been left or the newspaper. And um, a white woman had been there on the outside trying to call to, to whomever she was visiting to get buzzed in. So when my friend Donna opened the door, um, the white woman gathered up her packages and just it, that she'd been, she'd been put down in order to dial and said, oh, thanks, and started to walk into the apartment with Donna. And Donna said, I'm sorry, we have a policy. I can't just let you in. You don't live here. And she said, oh, I'm a white person. So, and Donna said, what are you talking about? She's like, well, you know what I mean. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white woman. I'm not here to... Do. And Donna said, that's racist. You know, that is not okay. And the lady started calling Donna names. And, blah, blah, blah. and Donna did not let her in. So the lady had to buzz herself in with whatever friend she was visiting. And Donna, who doesn't move very quickly, was then, you know, still in the hallway as she listened to this woman berate her. But I said, Donna, you keep doing that. You were it had the privilege to be in that conversation and you called it out. And that is a beautiful thing. And, you know, this lady might not learn anything from that particular moment, but other people are now hearing that story and may feel emboldened to, say, to call things out like that when they hear them. It's allyship. And allyship to me is radical compassion. And allyship means use whatever privilege you have to help someone else out. And in some instance, the privilege might be your station in life, your profession. It might be your skin color, your race, your gender, your gender presentation, your sexual orientation, your age. It could be anything, your religion. You know, whatever privilege you have in that moment, you know, that's when you say, I believe this person. Someone says this bad thing happened. You don't say, did it really happen that way? Shouldn't you give them the benefit of the doubt? Stop playing the victim. You don't say any of those things. You say, I believe you. How are you? I want to hear more. And then you use whatever privilege you have in that place and space and moment to attach yourself to that person so that they can stand a little bit stronger when they're articulating whatever it is that they're trying to articulate. So we can all be allies for other people, particularly, you know, allies are needed for those who typically are underserved, unseen, marginalized, and um, just living in this part of the world, we all have some degree of privilege that we can use to assist somebody else. So 
It's radical compassion, and I see it increasingly in brave, the brave acts of people dealing with everyday stuff. That's awesome. Um, you already answered my last question, which was give us a little preview of the upcoming of the next book. Oh, sorry. Of the upcoming book that was coming, but that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, let me just say thank you so much. I cannot believe you said yes to us. I'm so grateful uh, that you decided to come to this little church in Palo Alto, miles from, from your my house. house. I'll strike that from the podcast so nobody knows where you live. No, no. <laughs> Um, I but, love it. Um, I wanted to. There's respo- a podcast. I love that. You're doing everything here. Well, we're trying. Yeah. I, I wanted. I wanted to say that books like this and voices like yours um, give us hope, and we're just so grateful that you're doing your work. You have some huge fans here, um, and we just pray that your tribe increases. Um, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I am. I feel blessed, I feel humbled and honored, and I want to give a final shout-out to Kepler's for being here. Kepler's has been the biggest the, the um, bookstore in the nation that has sold the most copies of How to Raise an Adult, and I'm so grateful to, for the extent to which they've supported both of my books. They let me have my, uh, my launch party, launch event for Real American in their store, so um, thank you for being here, and thanks to all of you for sticking it out and staying beyond dinner to hear the conversation, and and uh, I, like I said, I believe in all of us. So let's, let's get out there and be better parents and better humans. Thank you.